Uh, we are going to be considering John chapter 17 from verse 20, actually, sorry, through to verse 26. I know the bulletin says verse 23. If you did your prep yesterday and halted at verse 23 and now feel completely unprepared to listen, I apologize. But we're going to be considering the, the six verses from 20 uh, through to verse 26. John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, let us pray for God's blessing. Our Father, please bless us now with the word, not simply as read and heard, but the word that changes and makes us to rejoice in your goodness to us. Please bless us. O oh Lord, and please help us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, a, a young man this morning coming through uh, to worship was, was very upset with my sermon title. And uh, I immediately uh, thought uh, it was the PM, but realized that he was actually upset at the AM sermon title. And that is because he is learning his maths, and one plus one to him equals two. And so has uh, the pastor imbibed woke math, as they call it, where uh, nothing makes any sense anymore. And uh, so one plus one equals one, and I said, well, if you just uh, give me till the end of the sermon, perhaps this will make more sense to you. Now... Uh, I have no idea because uh, whether he was listening. Because at the end of the sermon, as he was getting his ice cream, I said, all right, now, what is one plus one? And he said, two. And uh, so I did fail in the first sermon. I'll see if I have any more luck uh, in the second. Now, uh, there's a bit of a transition here that our Lord is dealing with in verse 20. And up until now, I think a lot of the truths that have been uh, prayed for by Christ for his people have been implicitly true of us. There's an explicit reference to the apostles who are there, and they are representatives of the people of God, and so we are included in some of these wondrous statements. But here, it's a very explicit sort of turning from the immediate context of the apostles to now everyone who will believe in Jesus Christ. And you will notice that he says that, I do not ask for these, the disciples only, but also for those 
that is, you and me, who will believe in me through their word. He understands that it is going to be the apostolic word as they go and preach that is going to lead to the belief in Jesus Christ through the ages. It will begin with the apostles and the apostolic word will continue. The church is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And as the apostles preach, people will believe. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 10. You'll remember verse 14 and 15 where he says, How will they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone who is sent to preach? So our Lord understands that if the truths of His prayer are going to come to fruition, and they will, one of the main ways in which they will come to fruition is not simply through His prayer, but through His prayer as God the Father blesses the preaching ministry of the apostles and those after them who preach the apostolic word. Now, as Paul writes in Titus chapter 1, it's a glorious opening statement. He speaks of himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, here again, people will believe through the disciples, the apostles' preached word. And he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This is what he's speaking about here in verse 20. For those who will believe, that is, they will have faith. So the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Which accords, Paul says in Titus 1, with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Which Jesus says, this is eternal life. Verse 3 of chapter 17. So Titus 1 opens up with a sort of, uh, I would say, a, a shorthand of the prayer in John 17. But notice, Paul continues to say, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching. It's through the preaching that God will ordinarily convert sinners. I was the best man at, uh, well, he was obviously a friend, uh, you would expect that to be the case, at uh, my friend's uh, wedding many years ago in South Africa, and uh, when I first visited South Africa, I stayed at his house, and uh, at the time he wasn't a believer. His dad was a deacon, and he wasn't a believer, and, and I think the dad asked as I was visiting, knowing I wanted to study for the ministry, that as a young man I would come and stay at the house and hopefully have some influence upon his son. Uh, I showed up with two hooped earrings, and so the deacon was, was quite upset because he thought, how is this guy with two hooped earrings going to help my son who is not currently serving the Lord? Maybe the hooped earrings got uh, <laughs> very upset over the earrings. My dad was crying like that too when I uh, had the earrings. So, And... Uh, uh, quite apart from that, uh, one of the things I learned about this simple man, he was, uh, you know, he just believed very faithfully that if his son was going to live under his roof, that he would come to church on Sunday. That, that was a non-negotiable. And he would sit at the back of the church. He wouldn't pay any attention. He didn't care. 
But his dad realized he wasn't going to get converted likely by staying at home listening to his rock music. So he would come to church every Sunday and sit there disinterested until God converted him. And now to this day, he has a lovely wife and family. They all serve the Lord. We see them every time we go. We remain very close friends simply because the Word of God is the ordained means by God for the conversion of sinners. I opened up my Bible this morning uh, just like this as I uh, went to uh, preach, and it went open to Isaiah 45. And Isaiah 45, verse 22, is a very special text because uh, in the uh, time of the Victorian period, there was a snowstorm, and a young man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon was going as an unconverted person for a walk in a snowstorm and thought he should go to church and couldn't get to the church he was trying to get to and turned a corner to a primitive Methodist church where there were only about 12 or 15 people present. And he walked into the church and the pastor who was supposed to preach at the church wasn't able to show up because of the snowstorm. And so a shoemaker got into the pulpit and opened up to Isaiah 45 verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And he didn't really know how to preach, but he simply stood there and said, Well, you are not asked to do a whole lot, are you? Except look. You are not asked to do great things, but look. Look to Jesus with drops of blood. Look to Jesus crucified. Look to Jesus raised from the dead. Look to Jesus who has ascended on high and seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he zeroed in on Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon in his recollection of this conversion said, I was not accustomed to the preacher singling me out like that, but he dealt a good blow. Young man, you look very miserable, and you will be miserable in this life and the next unless you look to Jesus Christ right now. And it was at that point that Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted by some shoemaker who simply applied the Word of God faithfully. This is how God converts in church. I thought maybe there would be some miserable looking person here I could single out, but there's too many of you. (laughs) What does the Word of God do? The Word of God does what nothing else can do. It has a power. And God has a power in His Word. And that power comes to people who may be sitting there hating God for whatever reason they are in church or they are somewhere else, and the Word of God can convert. It can take God-haters and make them God-lovers. It takes those in darkness and makes them children of light. It takes those whose father is the devil and makes those to have God as their father. And so he prays for those who will believe in me through the Word that they may all be one. So everyone who believes, the goal is that they should be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the goal of preaching is to make people alive in Christ so that they may be one. But notice the oneness 
that our Lord is praying for here is a oneness that mirrors the oneness between the Father and the Son. The goal is not principally church unity. The first goal for there to be unity is oneness with the Father and the Son. And this oneness is something that has come up earlier in this prayer in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. So then you get to verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may share in this oneness. Verse 22, that they may be one even or in the same way as we are one. Or verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why is Jesus emphasizing this so much in His prayer? Because just as He will say in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, so if there is one shepherd and one flock, we must be one. Now some of you are thinking, well, how does that square with church history? You have uh, the Montanists in the early church, the Novatians, you have uh, all of these fights where people were exiled to islands, sometimes they were stabbed and killed. Uh, ridiculed. Then you get to 1054 and there's the first major split of the East and the West and you get to the Kohleberg of uh, Marburg and uh, all sorts of places. Uh, 1529 where Luther and Zwingli meet and Luther says to Zwingli, I detect a different spirit in you and wouldn't shake his hand and so on and so forth. And then you have the Roman Catholics and don't think they get away scot-free. The Jesuits and the Dominicans fighting different theologies. The Dominicans are a lot closer to the truth than the Jesuits, but they have all sorts of fights going on. Has the prayer that Christ has offered here been answered or is it unfulfilled? And I think that's a fair question, is it not? We have to ask, what is our Lord praying for in this oneness? whereby we experience unity with the Father and the Son, and by extension, therefore, with each other. What does he pray for? Well, notice he prays in verse 3, that people may know God, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. He prays for those who are given to Christ by the Father. That's in verse 2, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 9, it's also in verse 24. He prays for those in verse 7 who have accepted God's Word. So they know God, they've been given to Christ by God, and they've accepted God's Word. And they are in the world, but they are not of the world in verses 15 to 16. In fact, in verses 17 to 19, they are also those who are sanctified by the truth. And they are also those who share union with Christ and with God in verses 21, 23, and 26. So whatever you say about this oneness, those who are truly one with Christ and the Father are those who know Christ, those who believe in Christ, those who are sanctified by the truth. And you see, this dominant reality is something that actually does extend across denominational boundaries. There is nothing wrong with valuing the truth and seeking to get to truth and believing the truth as far as you understand God's Word. But there are non-negotiables of the Christian religion that unite us all. 
And those non-negotiables are brought out to us here. They're brought out elsewhere as well. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, basically, you must possess the Spirit of Christ because those who do not possess the Spirit of Christ do not belong to God. If you possess the Spirit of Jesus Christ and you are united to Him by faith, you belong also to God and to each other. You have a oneness. There is people in Afghanistan, there are people in Australia, there are people in Uganda, there are people all over the world right now with whom you share the same fundamental identity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all dwell in you and in them. In fact, Paul will say as he's writing in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, he says, but Christ, if He is in you, Although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ is in you. Or Christ in you, the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27 or in Ephesians 3.14 that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Whoever has been given to Christ has Christ. We are told in Romans 8.11 that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in you, then you will have resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. In fact, in 1 John 4.11, the context when speaking of God is clearly God the Father, we are told that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. So think about this. Whatever you can say about other Christians, and perhaps you can say a great deal about them, you cannot deny the fact that if they belong to Jesus Christ, they possess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as much as you do. And therefore, you are one by extension of the fact that you belong to God and so do they. That's why our whole membership is predicated basically upon those fundamental truths. How many people have become members and come up here and been asked to recite the entire Westminster Confession of Faith? As glorious as that document is, by the way, I will not apologize for it. It's beautiful. It is a stunning piece of work, but you come up here, what do we ask? We don't ask a whole lot of you. Are you a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. Are you saved by faith in Christ? Yes, I'm saved by faith in Christ. And will you therefore seek to live as becomes one who belongs to Jesus Christ? Yes, and in the context of the church where you will be cared for, will you be prepared to serve the church of Jesus Christ and promise to study its purity and peace? Can you be a Baptist and do that in this church? Yes. Can you be an Anglican? Yes. A Lutheran? Yes. Of course, I desire with my heart that you all see the great light of Presbyterian doctrine, but the point that I'm saying here is that our unity is based upon a fundamental reality. There will be walls with us all, but the walls should never be so high that you can't put your hand across and shake hands or, if we're being biblical, give a good holy kiss. This is what Christ prays for. And I believe with my heart that if He has prayed for it, it must have been fulfilled. 
despite whatever differences there may be. Now notice what this leads to, because if this mutual indwelling in verse 23 is true, notice the end of verse 23. I in them and you in me. So the Father and the Son are one, but we are also one with them, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world knows that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. You could even say in the same way that you have loved me. So the ways in which the Father has loved the Son and everything we know about that on earth, that is the way in which the Father will love you. Jesus is praying that the Father's love for you is not some abstract love where He says, oh, could you also look after those people? He is actually saying to the Father, I pray that you will love My people in the same way that you loved Me. There's no higher love you can get than that. He could say, would you also love those people? I have children and they have friends and I like their friends. They're good Good friends, most of them. The ones that aren't, I don't let in anymore. But I don't love my kids' friends like I love my children. It's crazy. One stayed over last night. Josh's friend. He's a good lad. He woke up yesterday at 7 a.m. while my son stayed in bed and watched Liverpool with me. That's about as close to winning my affection as one can get, earthly speaking but I still don't love him like I love my son. And yet Jesus is saying to the Father, would you love these people with the same love with which you loved me? He's talking about a qualitative type of love and asking for you to receive nothing less than what he received. Now as the finale of this prayer continues in verse 24 to 26, you see some of these truths brought out. And one is the most precious truth that I can possibly imagine. It is a privilege to read all of these words, but especially verse 24. A very, I think, powerful and comforting text to anyone who has ever lost someone in Christ in this world. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Remember at the beginning of the prayer, Christ asks for the glory to be given to Him with which He had with God before the foundation of the world. He's speaking about His heavenly glory here. And He is saying to the Father, every single person you have given to me, I want them to be with me to see my glory. There is a prayer hanging over every person's head right now sitting here whereby Christ has asked for you to be with Him. Your life in this world is only so long until the Father decides to grant the answer to this prayer to Jesus Christ. And as soon as He grants the answer, you are as good as dead. So that you may be as good as alive like never before. 
Think about someone that you have perhaps lost who was a Christian. And apply this verse to their death. Jesus has prayed, Father, I desire, fill in the name, that they may be with Me. That they may see My glory. And the Father will answer that prayer. And so if they have left you to be with Christ, it is because Christ has prayed that it would be so. And Christ has gained more than what you have lost. They have gained more than what you have lost. And they are right now enjoying the fruit of this prayer. This prayer. I desire that those whom You have given Me be with Me where I am. I'm not, uh, shall we say, going to ridicule the idea that someone could be looking down upon us right now. Angels do. So, maybe there's a sense in which the people of God glory in heaven over the worship of God that takes place on earth. I'm not entirely discrediting that. But let us get away from this idea that they're solely interested in us. They are consumed with all of the various glories that belong to Jesus Christ and they are happy and content unlike they could ever be in this world right now. In fact, it is true to say that at this moment, one saint in glory possesses a happiness that all of the saints on earth could not dream of because of Christ's prayer. And so he says in verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them Your name, and I will continue to make it known. How? You go back to verse 20. For those who will believe in Me through the apostolic preaching of the Gospel. I will continue to make it known. That prayer is being answered right now. Is it not? Jesus says, I will continue to make it known. Lo and behold, here we are 2,000 years later and it is being made known. You cannot say that any request in this prayer would not be answered. It is being answered in your very midst right now and all over the world. In places you've never dreamt exist. To people you do not know. And yet, Christ is making the Father known and He is making Himself known through the preached Word. And what is it that they are to know? That the love with which you have loved Me may be in them. And I in them. This is truly, truly remarkable. The love that the Father has loved Christ with will be in us. So think about this. Everyone on earth who belongs to Jesus Christ is the recipient of this prayer. But also something struck me yesterday as I was preparing. How was it that Jesus was able to go to the cross after praying this prayer. He knew after praying this prayer He was going to the cross. That much 
you can't deny because you look at the contents of this prayer and you know He's going to the cross. How is it that Jesus is able to go to the cross? And I think the answer is right at the end of this prayer. If we are going to experience the same love with which the Father has loved the Son, He must go to the cross. There is no other way for you to experience that love than for Jesus Christ to go to the cross. And as He goes to the cross, notice what He's thinking about His Father, that the love with which you have loved Me. In other words, does He think for a moment that the Father's love is somehow going to be halted in terms of His love for the Son? The answer is no. For all the darkness and for all the ridicule, and for all the heartache, and for all of the pain, and for all of the suffering, and as real as that was, and it was, our Lord Jesus Christ never lost sight of the fact that He was being loved by the Father, because as He was being loved by the Father, that love would trickle down to each and every one of us, and it would be that same love that the love with which you have loved Me may be in them. What is the goal of Christ's prayer? That the love of the Father may be in you. In you. And that love of the Father in you is so powerful because it's the exact same love He has for His Son. Now can I just ask by way of one point of application. Just one. What about your life right now could testify to the fact that you have been the recipient of the love of the Father for Jesus Christ such that it dwells powerfully in your heart. What explains you in light of that reality? If you think about that, is there anything greater than that? And if you take the greatest truth of our religion that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell in us and it is the same love the Father has for the Son in us, what about your life testifies to that? What? And once you start to ask that question, you can extrapolate everything else in your life. That you can go through darkness and know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is with you. That you can rejoice and know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is with you. That you can wake up on a Lord's Day morning and say, I'm going to worship God because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is with me. That I can forgive my brother or my sister because I know that the love of the Father is in me. That I can bear patiently with my children, my enemies, my workers, my boss. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because I know that the love of the Father Father that was given to the Son is also in me. That's what that should mean. And that is what Christ prays for. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and for the words of Christ because the words of Christ are met with answers here. And we pray for these answers to be powerfully present in us that we would not only one day see the glory of Christ, but until then we would receive the glory of Christ insofar as we receive Christ Himself so that we may be truly one with each other because we are one with God. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now before we come to...